So the first thing is slow your roll a little bit and don't worry so much about like what market rate is because the market is different today. And market rate is that you'll get fired soon. So do you, you want market rate or do you want stability? Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. Welcome back. Welcome back to the GTM podcast. Thank you for rocking with us. Uh, You're certainly in the right place if you're looking to hear real world stories from world-class leaders who are still actually in the trenches every day, making things happen. And I feel like I probably say this on way too many episodes, but uh, I'm super excited for this one. Today, I I genuinely just get to catch up with a friend, uh, try to unearth some of his learnings throughout his incredible career, and uh, we'll hit record as we do it so you can all listen in. Uh, I am joined by my dear friend, Sam Jacobs, uh, longtime sales leader and CRO, now the CEO and founder of Pavilion, who I imagine you all know. Uh, he spent the last seven years building out that business. It's been really cool to be a part of the journey and just see it all unfold. Uh, and he's also a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Kind Folks Finish First. He is a podcast host. We're lucky to have him as an LP in GTM Fund. All of the things. He's a true Renaissance man. Sam Wise the Brave. How are you, my friend? <laughs> Hi, Scott. Nice to be here. Nice to see you. And uh, likewise, it's uh, fun to hang out with an old friend. Absolutely. And uh, before we hit record, we were talking about vibes. So I got to shout out your your apartment vibes. I'm, uh, I'm liking it. <laughs> You're the only one. I am. Uh, it's funny. I'm we're on 7th Avenue and 11th Street. At some point in the recording of this podcast, you will hear some kind of noise pollution, whether it's a screaming homeless person, a bottle breaking, or most likely just a variety of different ambulances. And so I appreciate that my background looks cool, uh, but I am really done living in this apartment. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a direct correlation I'm finding between cool vibes and how many sirens and homeless people yell at you. It's one to one. The R score is 0.95. Yeah. My uh, fiance and I just went through a similar uh, transition. We were in Gastown in Vancouver, which is like kind of the cool artsy district, but got a lot worse through through COVID, unfortunately. So we moved a little bit out. So less vibey, but less uh, less screaming at the same time. But more peaceful. You and you've been talking about how you're just feeling wonderful these recently. So yeah, it's been great. I would say wonderful, more calm. Not drinking as much caffeine, just getting getting healthy. So it's it's been nice. All right. So there's so many areas I wanna I wanna take this, but try and do something somewhat topical. And you've got great opinions on on everything. I always like your takes. And I think, you know, we've talked about Silicon Valley Bank. Obviously, that was a wild situation for many folks, and looks like there'll be an okay outcome. But the next thing, it feels like there's one thing after another, um, 
Well, did you see yesterday when we're recording this, but, you know, all of the big investment banks agreed to deposit money with First Republic now because that was the next bank that needed to be saved. So this SVB thing, I don't know if you hear, there's the sirens. There it is, Um, right on cue. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Are the vibes actively going up as the sirens? It's just my desire for a rocket launcher is going up so that I can, (laughs) uh, you know, blow people up from my roof and just make them shut up. Um, But anyway. So the banking crisis continues, but what were you saying before that, Scott? Yeah, I mean, we, we can go there. I mean, like, uh, I heard Credit Suisse is is struggling. In trouble, yep. In trouble. Um, I don't even think we've seen the magnitude of what this is going to do to, like, the regional banking system. Everyone, and I mean everyone I'm talking to, is saying one of two things. One, I am moving my money to a top for big bank or two, I'm getting five different bank accounts. And that seems to be everyone's response. And both of those things are going to have pretty widespread implications. The first is easier to predict, right? You're going to see hundreds of small banks collapse. The second, I don't think we've seen it. What happens when everyone spreads out their chips um, with banks? You know, what, what do you think is going to happen? And how have you been kind of setting yourself up for this? What, what was your first response? We were pretty directly impacted because, uh, and we're recording this, you know, it's uh, the middle of March and um, the previous weekend was when, uh, it, it was a week ago today, it's only been a week that mm-hmm. Silicon, the FDIC took control of Silicon Valley Bank and we had just taken on a pretty major debt facility with them. And uh, that gave us the ability to draw down a couple million bucks in term loan and also gave us access to a line of credit. But all of that was contingent upon holding our deposits with them, 100% of our, you know, or the, the majority, uh, the majority of our operating accounts with them. And we just hadn't gotten around to transferring the money. So we had, you know, we had under the FDIC insured amount with Silicon Valley Bank, and then the rest of our money was with Citibank. And um, so we were feeling lucky, you know, through Sunday night. And then it was like Janet Yellen saying, all, uh, all depositors will be completely supported when the bank opens for business on Monday, March 13th. And so then, and then immediately, you know, the funniest situation was this, this, I think I might've shared this with you, Scott, but my mortgage broker from SVB called me on Monday and he's like, I just want you to know it's business as usual. And I'm like, Andrew, that's not what business as usual means. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think those words. You're not using that term correctly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Um, So... So, so then it was like, okay, and, and now they're very aggressive about saying, come back, we'll honor all of your debt facilities. Um, so, you know, we'll see what happens, but we probably will move some money back there, at least for now. It's, as they say, the safest bank in the world. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I'm, the whole thing of if, if there's not going to be a very aggressive and comprehensive, I mean, there just needs to be either regulatory change if we want regional banks to exist. And maybe we don't, you know, and that's, that's okay, I guess. Uh, it's not okay for anybody that works at any of those banks. But fundamentally, you know, the whole thing of like, depositors might get 97% of their money back. It's like, well, that that doesn't, that's not what you're looking for. You know, you, if you earned 100 bucks, and you just want a checking account, you probably want to make sure that you don't get 97 bucks the next time you try to draw withdraw money. So to your point, I think um, I'm not, I, I'm 
I don't know about spreading our money around three different banks. I don't know. Uh, it sounds annoying is the main way that it sounds. Um, but um, I certainly, you know, we we're certainly going to probably focus on until the government, the U.S. government comes out and says all banks are completely protected or all FDIC registered banks or the FDIC insurance limit for businesses is now up to $100 million. Mm-hmm. But in the absence of that, we will see the collapse of the regional banking system. So, And we'll see because you can't do piecemeal bailouts all the time without any policy regime in place, you know? So we'll figure it out. I mean, it's scary. And it's not just scary because of your the deposits. It's also, well, what about my customers? If you sell to startups... The, the first order thing was like, can I get my money out? That's great. But if my friend can't get his money out and he's writing and he's paying for a $150,000 pavilion sponsorship, you know, that impacts me just as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, And those are some of the like third order of magnitude things I don't think we've fully seen yet. Um, hopefully we've kind of navigated around a, a few of them, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to play out as, as a Canadian, like think the number we have is like somewhere around like 30 banks and you know that's common practice in most of like europe not to have you know just thousands and thousands of banks that sounds from a regulator standpoint like a nightmare how do you enforce everyone is running good practices when there's just so so many um yeah and so maybe, maybe we just need to make banking less sexy you know, the guy, what's his name? Greg Becker, Decker, whatever, the old CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, like he wanted it to be like a tech company. And that was really cool for the customers. But maybe banking is supposed to be like a boring industry. Maybe it's not supposed to be super sexy. Yeah. I was reading an interesting article because uh, Bitcoin did a little bit of a bump after this this happened. And uh, so I read some articles and... It would have taken, if everyone was using Bitcoin and the amount, I can't remember the exact amount that was transferred off of Silicon Valley Bank, but if people had tried to do that all at once on Bitcoin, it would take something like 20 years to facilitate the process. <laughs> <laughs> so, Can you imagine? It's just, I just can't, I'm, you know, the crypto hallucination is fading and all of us are like, what, what is the use case? <laughs> you know, like, what is the situation where like, ah, the answer to this is cryptocurrency. Yeah. Which that, like that seemed like, oh, this is the use case. This is what we're talking about. And then you actually think of the infrastructure and the pipes and it's like, oh. Well, also there's nobody to appeal to. There's no FDIC. There's no government. You know, that's the whole point. So it's like, well, do you like the FDIC? Do you like that Janet Yellen can come in and say all depositors will be backstopped and the bank will open for business on Monday. I like that. I thought that was a good thing. So I don't know. Satoshi's not coming out of nowhere and saying, all right, I'll backstop all the big <laughs> stuff. <Bitcoin, Yeah. maybe." laughs> We're going to do some, uh, you know, Gemini stress testing or whatever. <laughs> um, awesome, man. Okay. Uh, we'll see how that all plays out. And of course, you know, anyone directly, you know, impacted my, my heart goes out to you. Hopefully we've, We've stopped the contagion as much as we can for now. Um, but I want to spend the bulk of this time um, wrestling with just your story because it's a really interesting one. Um, I've had many a coffee and many beers and, and heard the different chapters of your life. And I think an easy place to start, you know, you're the kingpin of, of community. There's no doubt in my eyes 
you know, that Pavilion is this marquee community where executives can learn, network, share amongst, you know, true peers, which I think is a, a big element of why you've seen such insane growth that you have. But I want to talk through the origin story. Why were you called to start Pavilion, which at the time was, was Revenue Collective? Well, I, um, I wish I could say it was like some, uh, some master world domination plan that I'd been concocting in a laboratory for, you know, some 20 years or something like that. But really, uh, I, was the I am the customer uh, of, of uh, Pavilion, and, and that's, that's basically where things started. I, um, I started bringing people together for dinners in New York, uh, really in 2014, when I was working at a place called Axial. So it's been about nine years and I did it because I was a VP of sales that was struggling with trying to figure out how to do my job and how to be better at my job. And I was also feeling like there, I'd been to a couple, actually, as I'm thinking about it, I've been to a couple CEO dinners and there's this one guy and uh, he shall remain nameless, but he, he hosted a CEO dinner and my, my CEO of the company where I was working sent me as like the number two. And it was actually like a bit, uh, the guy gave a lot of pushback in terms of me attending because um, because I wasn't a CEO. And I felt like, you know, I wanted a club to join where that guy couldn't join instead and where like all of us that were operators could band together to help and support each other. And so we started going to dinner once a quarter and then uh, we started an email group so that we could ask questions. And the point of it was always to try and share it was to, to share information about stuff that you couldn't Google, you know, and it was really a lot of it was related to compensation and to how to negotiate and think about uh, think about executive compensation in the right way. And um, and a lot of it was just about tactics and strategies to be good at the actual job itself. And then, of course, some part of it was helping people find the next job when inevitably uh, they were fired. And of course, over the nine years that I've been doing this, you know, I've been fired my fair share uh, of times. And so I never, there was never any grand uh, world domination plan. What happened was that I started working on it more aggressively in 2017, about six years, five and a half years ago at this point when I was fired from my second to last job. And then in 2018, people really, when I started doing the Sales Hacker podcast with Max, uh, people started hearing about Pavilion was called Revenue Collective at the time, from all over the world. And people started reaching out, Tom Glasson in London, Butch Langlois in Toronto, Andre Brussel and Tommy Taylor in Amsterdam. And, um, and it, it, I guess I had assumed that there was like a sales executive club or a sales networking society in every city. And it turned out that there wasn't. And so people started joining and, you know, and we were just a dinner club, really. We were a dinner club. We didn't even use Slack at the beginning. And now I, a lot of people think of us as like a Slack community, but that's not what we were. We were just uh, we were just a bunch of people that got together for dinner, most of which outreach paid for. And then um, <laughs> and then uh, and then COVID came along, and I think people needed community more than ever. And that was when we saw our most explosive growth, and we went from you know about seven hundred members to about four thousand members, you know, in a year. And now we're about 10,000 and, you know, and we're sort of entering the next chapter of our evolution. And we've, you know, the middle chapter, there was like this first period of growth. And then there was a middle chapter, which I think hopefully we're coming out of, which was uh, maybe adolescence, which was like trying to figure out who, who are we really going to be and what are we really going to become? 
And then, you know, hopefully this next chapter is really basically returning to the roots of the story that I just told you. We, we've co we're coming out of a period where we're trying to like, you know, maybe we're going to start a people pavilion for HR professionals and a legal pavilion for general counsel. And uh, we were going to help SDRs and account executives in addition to executives. And I think um, where we're coming out on this is we want to be the premier uh, executive community for sales and marketing executives and CEOs. Uh, but we, we are probably not going to be the people that start a legal community or a CFO community. We're for go-to-market professionals to the point of, you know, being an LP and GTM fund. And we're for founders and CEOs that want access to best in class knowledge on revenue. And, um, and we're not going to really be focused on training SDRs or account executives. We're really for what we were originally for, VP and above, and helping people get to the C-suite, get to become the CEO, help them navigate their career better, help them understand how to negotiate better. That's who we want to be. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of those people out there, and that's who we want to serve. And the other thing I would say is that we're emerging out of is that we also um, – you know, there, there was the draw of B2B. There was the draw of, well, let's sell directly to the company. I, um, mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to do that, uh, you know, on a go-forward basis. I think that um, our emphasis is going to be individual human beings. We want to work for the human being. We want to work for Scott Barker. We want to work for Max Altshuler. We want to work for Sam Jacobs. We don't want to work for your employer. Um, we want to be able to have a job board. We want to help you negotiate. We want to help you protect yourself. And that's much harder when we serve a company as a boss and you as a boss. We just want to work for one person and that's the individual human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the, the shift back to your roots and I feel like supporting the individual is how I always felt, you know, in the pavilion community. And I think it's a really smart move. I mean, there's somewhat of a conflict, right? If you're maybe a CRO who's in pavilion and you're struggling with, a dynamic with your CEO or you're trying to negotiate your comp and that company's paying for your membership, like maybe you're less candid and uh, willing to have some of those tough, tough conversations. Yeah. I mean, hopefully uh, I think the company should reimburse, you know, uh, the member for their dues. But I think that fundamentally, like I, I want the relationship to be with the CRO and I want to work for him or her. I mean, it's a absolute no brainer for companies to, pay for a pavilion membership, the speed at which you can just get those, you know, ungoogleable answers is pretty uncanny. And right, you know, we have LinkedIn and there's some great content on LinkedIn, but we all know if you're actually in the trenches, like every LinkedIn post should at the end be like, but it depends on your business model and your stage and <laughs> what's going on. There's so much context I don't have. So I don't actually have a clue if this is going to be relevant. Whereas where you have a community of true peers, you can seek out someone who is in your category, who's in your similar stage, who has sold to the same buyer and be like, hey, I need an SDR onboarding playbook. What should I be thinking about? And then you have this contextual learning that can happen and just accelerate you know, what might have taken someone two months, you know, three days. It's almost like the, you know, chat GPT where you can get the answers and then it's your job to refine them and edit them to make them make sense for your business. Similar thing with Pavilion. You're just getting it from real human beings who have actually done it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge 
which I'm sure has led to some churn uh, within Pavilion is, is, well, what do you do when it gets too big? And, you know, how do you preserve intimacy and how, and, you know, how do you continue to make it an exclusive club if it's perceived that anybody can join? And um, my answer to that is, I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but I, I think that you, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not Soho house. I'm not Kim Kardashian. I, I I'm not going to be the guy that runs the coolest club in town. You know, I wasn't like a promoter when I was younger. So I don't know how to scale cool, you know, like I, I don't, that's not the strategy. Sirens. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I, so the way I'm thinking about it is like the community is in some ways the, the second order effect. I want people to come for the tools. You know, I, 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 want, I don't want you to worry about whether it's the cool club or the lame club. I don't want you to worry about, well, Soho House was cool three years ago, but now it's not as cool. I don't want that to be the conversation. I want it to be, they just released a course on how to make it from CRO to CEO and how to get your first CEO job. And that's something that I need to know. And they just announced that they're doing their big conference in Nashville and Insight Partners is going to host their portfolio revenue retreat at the same time and is going to be a key sponsor. And if I want to connect to Insight Partners or other leading growth equity and venture capital firms, Pavilion's the place to do it. Or uh, they're hosting the CMO Summit and, um, you know, they're, the quality of the content that they're dropping is so amazing. Or there's this, they're doing this executive compensation course that's on demand that's released today. This is true. Uh, and, um, and, and if I want to know how to negotiate my comp the right way, that's the only place that I'm going to really learn the ins and outs of it. So I want to lead with value and utility. And then from there, the community obviously is the thing that supports all of that. And that's why we call it community powered learning. But for me, that's, I'm trying to like cut the Gordian knot of like, I, I can't guarantee that every single person you meet is going to be a Nobel laureate. But what I can guarantee is that this is the essential place to figure out how to become uh, a revenue executive and a, and a productive, powerful one with a community behind you supporting you where you want to go. So that's kind of how I think about it. You know, CRO school, all of, all of the programming that we're putting together, I want, I want people to say, you know what, regardless of anything else, I need that information. I need that credential. I need that stamp of authority and approval. And also there's this amazing community behind it that supports us. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a great way of, of looking at it. And I've always thought too with with community pavilion and, and others, you know, you can't just have a community full of, you know, folks with 15, 20 years experience as a uh, an executive, you know, because sometimes it's hard to learn from those. If this is my first day, you know, my first board meeting's coming up, I kind of want to learn from someone who's just had their first board meeting like a month ago. What did they do right? What did they do wrong? Like that is going to be really helpful for me instead of, you know, you have this exec who's so polished and I'm like, wow, that just seems so foreign. I could never get there, you know? So you need to have a breadth of people you can kind of lean on. Um, and I, I love the fact that it's like, you won't care if this is the cool place to be when you are jumping into that first board meeting or you've negotiating your comp or, you know, you're just getting promoted or you're trying to evaluate a role. Like I I've had pivotal moments in my career and Pavilion was the first area I, I went to. And more than that, I know you. So it's like calling you <laughs> like, Sam, I, I need help. How do people actually deal with 
XYZ situation. I've personally never been in this and it's just a place you can go and you're like, oh yeah, well, people go through this all the time. This has happened, you know, six times in my career. I was just talking to XYZ. They're going through the same thing. You don't feel alone. You can have some actual strategies to move forward. Um, I would love to spend a little bit of time actually just talking about that because I know you have great tips, tricks, things to think about. Um, it's been helpful in my career. There's a lot of people jump in roles, whether they've been laid off or I, I see just as many people actually leaving roles. Um, what should people be thinking about when evaluating a new role? And then what should they negotiate for in their contract? Well, um, I think it's never been more complicated, the answer to this question, and more uncertain. And I, even today, you know, before this podcast, I was on two different calls with members. One of them's out of work looking for what's next. Another one has been the VP of marketing slash CMO for like one of the big companies that we all talk about. But, you know, she's been there a while and isn't quite sure what she wants to do next and is thinking, and then meanwhile, her husband has been through four different jobs over the last, wow. uh, you know, over the last couple of years. So what should you think about? First of all, just understand, you know, in the, if you want to work at high growth companies, uh, it's going to be a crapshoot no matter what. I can't give you a perfect framework. I think the main thing you want to think about is what is the orientation of the CEO founder towards growth, particularly if you're in a revenue function and do you agree with that orientation? And I think that what I mean by that is that a lot of founders and a lot of CEOs have, they are, they are, they are reflections of their investors and their, their investors were and are a reflection of the momentum of the environment. And so when, when money was free in 2021 and 2020, their investors were saying grow at any cost. And when money became expensive again uh, in 2022 and particularly this year, I think the feedback is sustainable growth. And I think that that can feel like a bit of a whipsaw to an operating team and to a CEO, frankly, to being told like, grow at any cost, raise $100 million, actually fire half the company and get to profitability, even if you have $50 million in the bank and don't really need to get to profitability right now. So one of the, I, I think the fundamental thing that you want to think about is, do, does my perspective on growth align with how the CEO wants to grow? And I will say that again, and, and what does all of this translate to? I think all of it translates to today, 2023, a world where I really think, I think you're going to have to like in your mind sign up for not even like a two year stint or a three year stint, but in your mind commit to six years. You know, it's going to take a while to work through. We're in a hangover period from a period of excess and free money that, that, that culminated in probably November of 2021 when the, at the peak of the crypto market. And, um, and we we're, we're recovering from that. And that's what this Silicon Valley bank stuff is. That's what all of this is that all of the things that we used to think, and this is sort of to the point about like what you should negotiate for all of the things that we used to think about comp plans and commission rates and how much people deserve to make and what market salary is. That's different now. That's mm -hmm. different now. And that's because, um, all of that was predicated on, in a world of free money, uh, whatever you might accomplish in 10 years is weighted equally to what you might accomplish next year. That's just the way time value money works. 
So the point is that if 0% interest rates, you if you had a plan that was unprofitable for nine years, but then in year 10, you took over the world, that was a really good plan because money was free. And we could we could wait to see if you were right for 10 years. But in a world where money is expensive and where the Fed funds rate is going to go up to 5.5%, um, that means that the year 10 idea is worth way, way less than the than today, than today. And what that means is that that's why profitability is so important right now, because the value of the of the dollar today is worth way more than it would be in 10 years, which is completely hypothetical, which is frankly the way the world has mostly worked over the modern financial industry over the last couple of hundred years, but uh, but just didn't happen to work over the last 15 years. So what does that mean? So when you're evaluating a company, that means that buckle up for a long ride and try to pick somebody that you really think you can work with for an extended period of time and understand that even then it's a crapshoot. And then, so then what does that mean that to negotiate for? First, I think the number one thing I would advocate is for alignment. And I talk about that a lot. And that means that when the company wins, you win. And when the company loses, you lose. And I don't advocate, I think CROs and VPs of sales are in a bad habit of, although I hope we're emerging from it, we'll see. But I think this idea that like the VP of sales is the person that brings in all the money and he or she should be the highest paid person in the company and they should also be fired every year and a half. I think that that's um, not super healthy, but I also think it misunderstands how revenue is actually generated, which is across business units as a team sport, as a function of product market fit plus good marketing plus good sales. And so what does that mean in terms of comp? That means that first of all, I'm not, I don't think a, VP of sales person should go in and be like, market is 250, 250 uh, for a total OTE of 500. I don't think half your money should be paid in commission if you're a VP of sales. I don't agree with that. I think that that doesn't make any sense. You're, if, if you really believe that sales is a team sport and that revenue generation is a team sport, then you should probably be willing to be paid the way that every other executive is paid. The way that we pay at Pavilion is, um, 20% of, you know, of every uh, executive's base salary is their bonus opportunity. And we all achieve that bonus opportunity together if the company hits its goals. And if the company doesn't hit its goals, then we don't get paid the bonus. And um, I think that's fair. And I think that's the right way to think about it. So that's one thing I think, but also, especially if you're in the US, I do think that you have to protect yourself a little bit. And that means you know, uh, I think that you should pre-negotiate severance and I think you should lock that in. And I think market is three months and really like if it's a company of meaningful size and scale, then maybe you're looking at six months. And I think six months after having done a couple of years um, and it really helped the company grow is probably like the fair target for what you're going for. Um, but I would say that three to six months is like the right amount of pre-negotiated severance, which feels like aligned with, again, what's fair. And then I think you have to think about what's the value of the equity and do you understand how to value it? And are there terms that you can introduce into the equity to make it more likely that it becomes cash? And, um, and that's where, you know, private equity has this famous phrase, your price, my terms. And what that means is, you know, if you want to tell your dad or your mom or your loved one that you sold your company for a hundred million dollars, go for it. Tell them that it was a hundred million dollar purchase price, but we'll know that we put down $5 million and $95 million was on an earnout against very difficult to attain revenue and EBITDA targets. But if you want to tell people that it was a hundred million, go for it. And so um, 
it's similar that way with equity in a high growth company, which is, you know, the amount that the, the nominal amount of it is interesting, but more interesting is what are the things you can do to increase the likelihood that it actually becomes cash. And those are, those are things like uh, double trigger acceleration that you can introduce so that if there's a company is sold and you get fired, that all of your invested equity accelerates. Those are things like, Hey, I want two to three years to exercise after I leave the company instead of 90 days so that I don't have to come out of pocket before I really understand whether uh, there's going to be value to the equity. I want the opportunity to do some kind of cashless exercise. I want, you know, uh, if I find a buyer, I don't want the company to be able to block the sale. Maybe the company gets a right of first refusal, but can't outright block the transfer securities if I can find a relevant buyer. These are all things they're not about the amount of the equity. They're just about the terms of uh, the equity. So those are some of the ideas that I have for people about uh, negotiating. Last thing I'll say is, you know, when we launched Pavilion, then Revenue Collective, there was five elements to the Bill of Rights, and I've addressed a few of them. But the, the those five elements that are the key to any executive negotiation, in my opinion, are the right to due diligence, which means the right to understand what's going on with the company before you work there the right to aligned compensation, the right to severance, the right to liquidity, which is the terms of the equity, and then the right to uh, consult, which is, hey, if we're all going to work a million different places, then we need some ability to monetize our non-competitive expertise. And uh, and it's okay to have a side hustle provided that it doesn't interfere with our day-to-day responsibilities of being an executive. Those are all great, great advice. Um, You know, just on the DDP, something I'll throw in there. Talk to the VCs. If it is a venture-backed company, talk to those VCs. Take it with a grain of salt. They have a vested interest and you probably joining the team, but they will be privy to some information that maybe the company is not uh, telling you. And so have a conversation with a number of uh, different VCs. Um, and I can't tell you, I can't emphasize enough how important those three things you said are. Uh, entertaining like a cashless exercise, not being able to block a buyer. like This is actually fairly common stuff. You can go and be like, okay, I got to come up with a million dollars to exercise my options. You're like, oh, I'll just go find a buyer. They'll help me do so. They can actually block that transaction. And there is a weird incentive structure for them to actually block it because that they can kind of read between the lines of like, oh, maybe they're not going to be able to come up with this money. And, you know, so that is a big one double trigger accelerator, two, three years to exercise. That's huge. Is that, is that common that, that people will, uh, that's the most yes common of, of, of yeah. what we've just talked about is, uh, is more, more time to exercise. And I can tell you that again, I wrote about this on LinkedIn, but it bit me in the ass both ways. Mm-hmm. So I left one company and decided to exercise. I had to come up with, you know, you had to make the decision. I asked for more time and they wouldn't give it to me. And then the company, so I exercised, I cut a massive check, massive check to the IRS. The company immediately did a down round, you know, I'm nominally on the cap table, but honestly, I've never really heard from the company after that. So then I'm like, all right, I'm never exercising again. So I left another company live stream and, uh, and I was going into work, you know, one day and my phone started blowing up and it was everybody congratulating me. And it was like, Hey, live stream sold to Vimeo. And I was like, it was just the worst day because I had intentionally decided not to exercise. And in both of those instances, if I just have the opportunity to wait a little bit longer, uh, you know, either something good or something bad would have happened. So I, um, so yeah, so like 
that's the common one. I think that's it's very, very valuable and meaningful uh, if, if, you have, if you have the opportunity to do that. Great advice. Um, all right, I wanna quickly go to a listener question. Uh, so for those maybe tuning in for the first time, we do take listener questions. So you can always send uh, your thoughts, your questions to questions at gtmfund.com and we'll uh, try and answer them on a, a future episode. Uh, this one's super relevant. That's why I pulled it out. Um, it goes a lot into what we're just talking about. I'm stepping into my first VP role and I don't know what I should be looking out for in my contract. I've been here a while and it feels like the comp might not be as competitive as industry standard. Would love your advice. This is pretty common. You know, you maybe you're at a company for seven, eight years, which is like 40 in, in SaaS years and you're getting these promotions, but they might not be at market rate. Um, how do you, how do you handle that? How do you coach people to handle that? So again, uh, what is market rate in 2023? You know, um, so dear listener, your idea of market rate, if it's grounded in 2021 or 20, first half of 2022 compensation is not market rate anymore. Uh, market rate at Facebook is you get fired. Uh, you know, market rate at Salesforce is they've done rounds and rounds of layoffs. So my first thing is like, don't get too uppity right now. Like now is not the time to be like, oh, like I said, you know, I'm supposed to make 500 OTE. If you've never been a VP before, I mean this sincerely and people don't want to hear it, uh, you know, and especially youngsters. Uh, we had a woman that worked for, for Pavilion and she started, you know, subtweeting us as soon as she left saying, stop telling people that they should work for experience and not money. Listen, I'm not saying you should be poor. I'm not saying you should be taken advantage of. I'm saying if you've never been a VP before, maybe the opportunity to be a VP is pretty valuable. Right. And maybe you're going to work a long time and maybe your job is to not try and extract like maximum dollars from your employer when they're giving you an opportunity to step up when you know that the average tenure is 17 months, when most of the time people get fired. So the first thing is slow your roll a little bit and don't worry so much about like what market rate is because the market is different today. And market rate is that you'll get fired soon. So do you, do you want market rate or do you want stability? So that's one thing I would say. I would say that, again, you know, market is 50% of your money in base, 50% in commission against a quarterly target. Um, I would say that I don't really agree with that. As I've mentioned, I think it's better to be able to live comfortably on your base and have an incentive that aligns you with the rest of the executive team. But I would say that as you become an executive, it's okay to ask for, to look at your equity allocation and figure out if that's the right amount. And also, and that's where, you know, I probably would defer more to market compensation than in terms of cash comp. And I would also probably look at uh, severance and whether you, you can insert it. Because again, what you're doing when you ascend to the VP ranks is you're taking on more risk. You know, it's, uh, it's not just a big opportunity to step up, but you're also introducing, you know, existential risk to yourself. It's easy to, if you're a high performing account executive doing your job, crushing your quota, you probably have a lot of job security. But when you're the leader of the organization, leader of the revenue function, you don't have job security because if people feel like your decisions, which are high consequence, high impact decisions, you know, how to build the team, what segment should we go after? These are big, big ideas. And um, if you're wrong about them, uh, you'll get, you know, you'll get canned. So I would say emphasize equity, emphasize uh severance 
And then if you're really focused on cash, I would emphasize milestone-based attainment goals. I would say like, instead of, again, the thing that's gotten me into trouble in my career is I see more opportunity, more responsibility. And I'm like, ah, that's, they're going to pay me. Those, those mother effers got to pay me, you know, let me go get that money. And, uh, and I remember uh, my boss, and as is in my book saying, hey, dude, the promotion is the promotion. Like the responsibility is the promotion. This is a great opportunity for you. And I didn't want to hear it at the time. I was like, well, I had it in my mind that you're going to pay me 700 grand a year. They're like, well, we're not. And then I, you know, I went home and I cried, to be honest. I was like really upset. It had, I had a lot of pent up emotions about it, but I feel like they were right. So my point is like, if you really want more money, then let's talk to the CEO about what are the outcomes three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now that we agree are success. And let's, I would like to grow into that compensation. So let's agree that if we achieve these outcomes, this is the compensation that's related to it. I think that's a better way to do it than, oh, you want to promote me, pay me. You just look like you're trying to hold them hostage. And I think it, it's not the right, it's not the right tone. It's not the right tenor of dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with the, the milestone based kind of incentive structure. That's something even super early on in my career, anytime I was negotiating for any bump, it would be in milestones, but it, because it becomes a no brainer, right? It just, it's, of course. Like it's like, if I do these things, will yeah. you pay me for it? Yes, yeah. I will. Yeah. And what does that mean to the business? Oh, that, that means the business making X. Why would we not cut off a piece for old Scott and Sam? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's great advice. Slow your roll, emphasize equity, emphasize severance, look at milestone-based incentive structures uh, when, when possible. Uh, I think that's awesome. All right, Sam, I got two more questions for you. We'll get some hot takes and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, this is always a fun one and you can take this anywhere. It can be something we discussed in this pod or completely out of left field. I keep it intentionally vague. Uh, what is one idea that revenue leaders or founders believe to be true that you think is bullshit or at least no longer relevant? A couple of things I've written about this and, and, uh, People misunderstand me, but the, the main thing that I think is bullshit is that salespeople generate the money. I think that money, and, and then some salespeople hear this and they get upset with me. My sales team saw me write something about this on LinkedIn and got upset with me, but they misunderstand. There's a little bit of nuance and nuance is lost in the modern world. But the point is that um, a great product with great marketing generates awareness and interest. And then salespeople turn that awareness and interest and harness it and turn it into money. And then customer success, you know, serves the customer and renews it, hopefully. So my point is that revenue generation is a team sport and that, you know, a lot of founders, a lot of CEOs think they need, I've had so many conversations with people. I need a, I need a rock star CRO. That's what I need. That's what's missing. And most of the time, that's not what's missing. I mean, sometimes maybe, um, and maybe I'm just not good enough to know, uh, you know, uh, but most of the time, that's not what's missing. At the early stages, the main thing you should always be focused on is your existing customers, how to make sure they renew and how to make sure that, you know, they stick around. And, and relatedly, more bullshit. All of the metrics that people think are benchmarks are currently bullshit. And I think that that's, that's just something I really want to underscore if you're out there listening. Uh, uh, most businesses can't work paying 15% of bookings. Most businesses, the really the only manageable commission rate is eight to ten percent of of ACV. Most, um, most uh, your business is not worth ten times ARR. 
Today, your business is worth most public company SaaS businesses are currently trading at 4.8 times ARR. So your idea that your company is worth $400 million, if you're doing $40 million in ARR, that is factually incorrect. If you're an account executive and you're bitching on LinkedIn and I see, you know, the I'm, I mean, to the point, right? Like I'm not the union leader of account executives. That's more like Ryan Walsh at RepView, right? But all of his data, all of his numbers and all of his CRO experience came in an era of 0% interest rates. So all of the information, all of the things that you think you know about what you deserve to be paid are based on free money. And they need to be updated to reflect the fact that money is no longer free. So you can tell me that, you know, well, my market rate, VPs of sales are making 500, 250, 250 at a 5 million ARR company. And I can say to you, maybe so. That math doesn't work for a business that has to operate in today's world. And um, paying 12% or 14%, that math doesn't really work, especially if you're paying SDRs. And, you know, one-to-one -one SDR ratios on 8K deals, that doesn't make sense either. Like, you got to understand the math of the business. That's my, my hot take for anybody out there listening is, like, it is not somebody else's job to know how to use a spreadsheet. If you can't use a spreadsheet, if you can't figure out how business actually works and makes money, where revenue over is greater than cost, if you can't figure out, if it's not, you can't defer that or delegate that to the CFO. That's your job as an employee of the company to understand how the business works. And if you don't want to do that work or that's not interesting to you, take a hike, pal. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I kind of want to just end there. That was like too good of an ending <laughs> to not just wrap it up. And take a hike, Cut. pal. If you don't like spreadsheets, stop listening to this. Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> Now it's, shit. It's, it's incredibly true, right? Like in a, in an age of a, abundance, it's not that those numbers didn't matter. Just no one was paying attention to, them. you know, you could. Yeah. And your sense of entitlement about what you deserve, like you better update it, like click, click refresh on yeah. your mindset because yeah. it's the numbers are different today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even like I was thinking about this the other day too, of basically for the last, eight years, if you broke into tech in whatever capacity, you know, BDR for eight months or you got into customer success or whatever, somehow you would always find a new job. And you don't see that in every industry. Just because you have experience doesn't mean you're good and that we should keep you. You know, I think there needs to be a little bit more accountability for, for people on both ends of the, the spectrum. Well. Welcome to it. 2023, the year of accountability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. La last thing um, I do want to do is make sure folks know upcoming events. Uh, how can people hear more from you? I know you're super active on LinkedIn. And if people want to get involved in Pavilion, which I would highly recommend, um, what's the best path in doing so? Sure. Well, um, you know, we've got a, a virtual event at the end of April. Uh, we're still nailing down the date. So a couple of weeks if this comes out in April, uh, that's going to be sort of a state of pavilion and also navigating, you know, an uncertain world. And we're going to bring on a bunch of amazing guests and AJ Bruno, CEO of Quotapath and Chris Hartvickson, CEO of Dooley and Jocko Vanderkoy and hopefully maybe you or Max. So that's going to be awesome. That's going to be a virtual event. Then we're doing a CRO summit in London, June 8th. And then the big one is our first kind of Dreamforce inbound style conference, which is uh, GTM 2023. 
uh, in Nashville, October 10th through 12th, which is going to be co-sponsored by Insight Partners uh, and is going to be super amazing. And then if you want to, but that's just part of what we do at Pavilion. Really what we're trying to do is help you learn how to navigate your career, get some of the information that I've shared. And, and you can learn more there by going to joinpavilion.com. You can enroll. Uh, today, which again is March 17th, 2023, we're uh, unload, uh, releasing five different self-paced learning programs um, through Pavilion University, including CRO school, CMO school. In the past, you had to take it live. Now you don't. Um, our executive compensation course is now included in membership that's on demand. So if you want to learn about any of the things that I've just talked about, uh, you can take that class as part of your Pavilion membership. So I go to joinpavilion.com. If you have questions, you can always email us. You can email me, Sam, at joinpavilion.com. Beautiful. I love it, brother. Well, congrats on the incredible journey. Thanks for sharing your learnings. Thanks I'm for having me. for uh, the next 10,000 in, uh, in Pavilion. I'm sure it will be <laughs> short, short order. And uh, I'll uh, be hanging out with you, hopefully in London and in Nashville. I'm excited for these events. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we got the GTM fund retreat at some point uh, in the fall as well. So I'll go to that too. Hell yeah. Coming up in Napa. It's going to be a good time. All right, brother. Great, to, great hanging out. And for all the listeners, appreciate you rocking with us. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.